This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And good morning. This is indeed Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive. And today we're going to talk about a topic which truly is important for everybody in in this country, even if many of us are not entirely clear on what any of it means, which is one reason why we're going to bring somebody on board who can explain it all. And that is, of course, uh, my colleague from the Daily Maverick, uh, Ed Stoddard. Aside from his avocational expertise in fly fishing and a variety of other things, and he posts these lovely pictures of massive trout the size of the shark and jaws that he has captured. He is a veteran business and mining journalist with lots of experience in different publications in this country, and he's now the an economics correspondent for the Daily Maverick. And we're going to talk, and actually we're going to sit at his knee uh, virtually and learn from him about the mining charter and about something called the Catastral Survey, which seems so esoteric as to be impossible to understand, but is crucial because although mining employment in this country is down from its historic highs and as a share of the gross domestic product, it is down, it still represents a massive portion of the foreign exchange earnings of South Africa and therefore is crucial to the economic health of the country. And of course, it is also involved in a range of difficult issues uh, that relate to how the country enters into, what shall we say, the green economy. With that as introduction, Ed, welcome and thank you for joining us. Yes, hi, and good morning, and good morning to your listeners. Um, thanks for having me. So let's talk about the, um, a mining cadastral system. Basically, uh, a mining cadaster is an online portal that allows the public access. Um, when I say access, I mean it just allows um, anybody with an Internet connection virtually anywhere in the world, outside of North Korea, I suppose, to view existing mining rights exploration permits, applications, and and related things. And a number of African countries have been um, adopting such portals because there has been a big drive in recent years uh, to enhance transparency around the sector. Um, This is driven by the public, and it's also driven by uh, investors. And one of the reasons why uh, a portal would be important to an investor, for example, is because you can instantly see, oh, so I have uh, an exploration company, let's say, and um, I, I would like to maybe do some exploration in Namibia or Botswana. These are countries which which uh, have these, these portals. And if I want to go and work there, then I can see immediately, oh, okay, so this area here, there's already there's somebody has exploration rights there. Another company has exploration rights here. You can see the names of the companies. And if you want to get in on that action, perhaps you can contact the company um, and um, maybe get in on the action, perhaps uh, buy their rights from them, that kind of thing. But more importantly, it allows you know the public and all stakeholders to see what's going on. And one of the reasons we're having this discussion is because uh, South Africa's DMRE 
pointedly does not have one. Okay. It's one of the many ways in which the DMRE has fallen behind the curve in this game. Sorry, DM, DMRE for listeners who don't. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. The Department of Mineral, sorry, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy in South Africa. And the Mineral Resources and Energy Minister, of course, is Guadimantashi. Um, so what South Africa has instead is South Africa has this online system called SOMROD, which has been in place for uh, over a decade, and it's utterly useless. One of the things when I was doing some recent research was because I was working over the over the holidays for my sins. So between Christmas and New Year's, I went and checked SOMROD, and SOMROD was closed until January 3rd with, with no explanation. But the point is, is that national mining portal. Right. That's right. And the point is, it's an online portal. It shouldn't, you know, it doesn't take a break and go to the coast, right? Or go up to Kruger Park or something. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to be able to um, get on it 24-7, 365 days of the year. And of course, the Botswana cadaster was open for business at that time because, you know, it doesn't need to be manned, right? So I registered on the Botswana portal. It took me about two minutes. Um, but coming back to the to South Africa's Samrad system, it's so bad and so dysfunctional that it's one of the reasons why about two years ago, the DMRE finally uh, admitted to Parliament that it's um, – to a portfolio committee in Parliament, that the backlog for applications for mining rights and exploration rights and things like that had reached the point where it was over 5,000, the backlog. They've since reduced that backlog by about half, they announced late last year. But still, if you're over 2,000, you know, that's that's still an unacceptable mess. And it's one of the reasons why South Africa has so little... um such a small percentage of global exploration spend. And what I mean by that is it just has, so of, of all the capital that's being devoted by mining companies to exploration around the world, less than 1%, South Africa accounts for less than 1% of that. And while we, you know, we have a pretty good idea where the gold is in South Africa and where the PGMs are and where the coal is, there's still a lot of South Africa, surprisingly, that remains unexplored or underexplored, or perhaps it was explored 40 years ago, new technology might actually show what previous geologists missed. We're going to take a break right here, but I'm going to ask you to, when we come back, to explain why this is crucial for economic growth in the country, which I think is what listeners really need to know. But first, this word from our sponsors and a public service message and important information for people listening to The Deep Dive. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're back speaking with our guest today, Ed Stoddard, who knows everything there is to know about the Catastral Survey, the mining charter, or lack thereof, and why any of this should matter enormously to listeners. Ed, welcome back. As I was saying, so South Africa is, uh, has this very tiny percentage of of um, global mining exploration expenditure. 
And what that means is that without exploration, you're not going to find new resources. And without finding new resources, you're not eventually going to have new mines built, which is why people often speak about the South African mining industry as a sunset industry. Every year we see production levels going down and things like that. And the thing about mining is that it's a very long-term business. From the time that you find something and go, Eureka, to a mine actually being up and running and extracting the mineral wealth, that can, the timeline can be 10 to 20 years. I mean, it takes several years to build a mine and it takes a long time for a company to sit down and, and, and make what they call, you know, things like a final investment decision around these matters to, to commit capital to it. So the longer, so the longer that Samrad remains dysfunctional, the longer it's going to, it, it just means that South Africa is going to have probably a decreasing share of exploration spent. And it means fewer and fewer mines being built in the future, which means less investment, which means less employment, uh, which means less, yeah, lower economic growth, all that kind of stuff. And so it's really quite, a, it's, it's really quite a challenge. Now, the thing is that the DMRE recognizes that Samrat is is a mess, and the DMRE actually uh, tendered uh, for replacement, despite the fact that there is they basically want to reinvent the wheel. Now, this is despite the fact that there is an off-the-shelf system that's being used by several country countries in Africa, including Botswana and Namibia and Zimbabwe and Zambia and Malawi by the way, and the DRC. And it was, and, and this system has been developed by a company called Trimble, which started in Cape Town in 1999. And one of the issues that might arise here is that because it's been bought by a U.S., by a Colorado-based company, one of the issues that might arise here is that it might not be PEE compliant or something like that. This, But it's actually, this is an emergency. This is urgent. And, and, and the mining industry itself, uh, as, so the Minerals Council of South Africa, which is the main umbrella group for the mining sector in South Africa, it, its members account for about 90% of mining production here or something like that. The Minerals Council has even offered to help pay for it, but the DMRE seems to be reluctant. Now, finally, the, their, their attempt to uh, reinvent the wheel just came off flying off, and the the Director General late last year promised that by the end of this financial year, they will have procured one, which will be the 31st of March. But my most recent questions to the DMRE about that were done at the start of last week. As we are speaking, they, they had still not responded. There is a widespread suspicion that the DMRE has stuff to hide. And the fact is, is that, so what does the DMRE have to hide? Well, there's perhaps lots of, um, coal rights that, um, have, for, for example, uh, been, uh, allotted to, to caters and things like that. The other problem is that the DMRE has become so dysfunctional that they might, that they might not even know who has what. And as a result, it's going to be impossible for, for a company like Trimble to come in and actually establish a workable cadaster because it's such a mess. I mean, I've had sources send me pictures on WhatsApp and things like that of the Mapumalanga offices of the DMRE, where it's just, just, you know, paper, right? Files stacked up all over the place 
uh, sloppily in an office, which apparently are applications for mining rights and things like that. I mean, it's just a disaster. And it does seem like the, the government that the DMRE has stuff to hide. Now, whether it's corruption, whether it's incompetence, whether it's um, because they're, you know, because they, they want to go into protected reserves like the Kruger Park or something like that. Um, Lord only knows. Um, but one, one story I did recently, uh, Brooks, which I know, know you read was about, uh, related to Botswana's cadaster was that yeah. now, now you can see plain as day that the, um, a central Kalahari game reserve, which is a huge, uh, and kind of iconic game park right in the center of Botswana. It's the world's second largest reserve. It's, it's very remote. It, it's got big five and all that. Um, over half of that has now been allotted for all hydrocarbon exploration and prospecting uh, as well as, as mining. And, um, that will raise alarm bells with conservationists, but Botswana to its credit is not trying to conceal its spore in the sand. It's, I mean, anybody can, all you have to do is go onto their cadastral system, uh, map portal and take a look and you can see it for yourself. So, if, so Botswana, and the point is, is that, you know, investors want that and all stakeholders want that. So now conservationists want to raise alarm bells about it. Well, they know exactly where and they know exactly what companies to point to. It seems to me that there is a, there certainly is a coalition of interest who would like to have access to this data and the data is itself important and the data allows for other deeper questions to be asked. But in the absence of a system that allows you to ask any of the questions, let alone get any answers, you're left only with a miasma of suspicion and concern. That's something that if you're going to invest a gazillion rand in, you don't want to bother. No, precisely. It's like you're like if you've ever been in a mine. I don't know, and and you and and everybody turns their headlamps off, right? Everything's dark, right? That that's what the DMRE system is like. Whereas the Botswana system is like you're in the mine and suddenly all the lights are on. So precisely, um, investors, stakeholders, including the public. I mean, you know, the Botswana public, right, should know what's going on. Um, and the South African public should also know what's going on. But the DMRE uh, is keeping everyone in, in, in the dark about this. Can you tie this to the other question that, that comes up frequently? And that, of course, is the, the lack of, of finality on a national mining charter, which specifies and delineates rights and responsibilities of government companies and so forth in the process of exploring and exploiting mineral resources. Yeah, uh, so one of the things about the mining charter is that the DMRE would say that, that the mining, that, you know, that there is a mining charter and this, and that it's set in stone kind of thing. Although on the other hand, they will also say, well, but maybe we need to change this, that, and the other thing. And, and that's where, where the problems come in. So, you know, there have been disputes over things like, uh, a BEE requirements regarding ownership, you know, uh, whether it should be in, so if you have an existing mining right, my understanding is that it's, um, it, 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 it needs to, the, needs to be 20, that the company involved needs to be 26% black owned, right? And that, but the, but the issue there is that, you know, black shareholders might want to, uh, uh, sell their shares, right? They might want to, you know, uh, 
um, uh, tra- you know, transform the shares into capital. Um, and then if, so then if suddenly if you're 20%, now are you no longer compliant? So there have been debates around that. A, a, a high court ru- did rule in the industry's favor last year, but the, you know, the DMRE, my understanding is that may still take this to court, although they keep losing court battles. And the thing is, uh, so this kind of stuff raises uncertainty for investors, for example. And that's something that investors really don't, don't like. Let me add further uh, problems for you to explain uh, that as as the world slowly and fitfully lurches into the green renewable energy economy, uh, a lot of minerals uh, become less important, theoretically, like coal and, and hydrocarbons and other things like rare earths and uh, certain other metals become much more important. And the exploration, the exploration and the exploitation of such minerals could be important in this country if the two issues you just talked about were attended to. But if they're not, you slide further away from the center of the, of the new industry. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, sure. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. The thing is, is that you begin, so just related to that topic is, is that, um, many, many of the minerals that can still be, uh, explored here, right? Like we know there's a lot of manganese in the Northern Cape. I think there's a lot more. The Northern Cape is believed to also perhaps have lots of copper and things like that. This, these kinds of metals are considered to be green metal, but they're crucial to the green energy transition. You see what I mean? And, yeah. and South Africa's economy needs to decarbonize. And these kinds of metals are going to be in demand. So again, it's, it's the way that you're starting to get, you know, keep falling behind on the curve. Um, so this love affair with coal, for example, I mean, um, this doesn't pertain directly to the cadastre and it doesn't pertain directly to the charter, but, but the, the point there is that if South African industries in a few years time are seen to be getting their power, ha ha ha, but are seen, you know, mostly, you know, when it's available, right? Um, mostly from coal, that's going to render them, uh, uncompetitive because, um, it, because markets um, are going to markets, investors, etc., and regulations are going to increasingly demand that you have a lower carbon footprint uh, in your product. And so it's almost as if the coal interests here, and this is where we come back to the cadastre and what might be hidden, are holding the rest of the economy almost to ransom. Let me take a break here. We're speaking with Ed Stoddard, uh, veteran economics, business, and mining uh, analyst and journalist uh, who writes frequently in the Daily Maverick uh, and therefore is one of my colleagues. Uh, he's busy ex- giving us a, a very quick master's degree in mining engineering and mining finance. And we'll take this message and we'll be back in just a minute. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is Brooks Vector, and we are engaged in a deep dive, which I think has a really symbolic quality to it since we're talking about mining. You had asked earlier whether I had, you had sort of led a question about whether or not 
I had ever been down mines, actually been down gold mines and diamond mines, both in various parts of the country over the years. Uh, and uh, you, you're quite right. It is, uh, unless you turn those lamps on, boom, it is dark and it is dangerous and it is, uh, it is frightening if you don't know where and what you're doing. And that I think is kind of a metaphor for the problems that face uh, investors or potential investors. You've outlined some of them uh, with the catastrophe survey and the mining charter, but you've also alluded to the problem of coal mining as a sunset industry. The more it's protected, the more it will, in fact, drag the country further backward in its race to move into the renewables and the green economy. Could you maybe just open that up a little bit more for us? Yeah, yes. Like I say, so one of the things that, that like in major markets like the EU, for example, um, are going to increasingly um, impose tariffs on imports that are seen to have a high uh, carbon footprint. And the EU remains South Africa's largest trading partner. You know, we have this love affair with BRICS and all that, but Basically, the EU is, is, is South Africa's biggest trading partner, uh, I believe. And so if suddenly they're like, if you're um, sending a car there or whatever that's been manufactured here, and they're like, well, you know, we're, we're checking out the, the carbon footprint here, and, you know, 80% of the uh, electricity that was used to produce this car um, came from coal, then there's going to be uh, penalties regarding that. The drive to decarbonize the global economy is, uh, has got many pipelines, if I can put it that way. Or, um, and, 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 and that's just what, that's just one example. Um, and then, uh, of course, I mean, there's also the, the fact that, you know, Mapumalanga, uh, the air quality, um, we, we know it's, it's hectically, uh, polluted there. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I fish for trout in Mapumalanga, uh, rivers and, and dams. And, uh, luckily in the Dahlstrom Leidenberg area, that tends to be, uh, the, the, the water there tends to be, uh, coming straight out of the mountains because it's an altitude. So there's not much, so, so there's not much up, so there's not much kind of upstream from it that's, uh, uh, polluting it. But you know, other water sources further down um, are, are are getting polluted. We know, and um, so 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 there are you know there are legitimate environmental concerns to be raised around this. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, some of the some of the arguments that we've been hearing, as you're well aware, for a long time, is that you know Western economies uh, industrialized um, and and achieve very high standards of living. And all that jazz, um, largely because of hydrocarbons and, 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 and because of, uh, of their own greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, obviously thinking of North America and Western Europe and, um, uh, Japan, et cetera, developing economies, uh, which have, have a much lower carbon footprint and which, uh, will, you know, most analysts would say will probably bear the brunt of the many challenges that will arise from climate, from our changing climate and our burning planet, as we put it in Daily Maverick, um, that, um, you know, so they, they, they shouldn't have to, um, they shouldn't have to cut their emissions nearly as fast and, and things like that. But, you know, um, 
they're not really being expected to. I mean, you know, ESCOM is 80, 85% coal. And, and there are countries like, like even Norway, but also Australia, um, that, you know, um, in recent months have over the course of a month, uh, 90% of their power has been achieved by, by renewables. So for example, Minister Mantashi has also said, well, we can't be a guinea pig. Well, hello, you're not a guinea pig. <laughs> you know, Australia's a guinea pig. Norway's a guinea pig. You know, so now we're finally starting to see some movement on that front. I mean, the president announced earlier this week in his weekly newsletter, referring obviously to President Cyril Ramaphosa, that customer that, that that businesses and households that have rooftop solar panels will soon be able to sell back into the grid. Um, I happen to hail from the eastern Canadian province of Nova Scotia, and the, you know such a system exists in Nova Scotia. And trust me, Nova Scotia is not famed for its abundance of sun or warmth or anything like that. So if it can be done in Nova Scotia, it doesn't take an electrical engineer to figure out that it can be done in South Africa. But it's an example of kind of low-hanging fruit that should have just been implemented years ago. I mean, because because it provides in, in incentives for households and businesses to, one, provide themselves with a reliable power supply and also to reduce South Africa's greenhouse gas emissions and also to um, relieve some of the pressure off ESCOM and to begin, you know, maybe even giving it a bit of excess power. I always argued that this is a country where I believe the, the national average is something in the neighborhood of 350 days of sunlight per year. And in some parts of the country, it's probably almost every day. And I mean, if you go, I mean, out past Uppington, there aren't too many clouds in the sky most of the time. And if that's true, I mean, this is the lowest possible low-hanging fruit to capture energy from the sun. And yet it has become, it has been historically very difficult. There's no, I, I, I often wonder, for example, why there isn't part of the building codes that say any new building that is created in this country, why they don't have a requirement to have solar panels on the roof or uh, even some of these new, uh, solar energy capturing paints on parts of the, of the facades of the buildings. Then that leads us to the vexed and complicated and concerning question of the power and the potency of the coal lobby writ large. Well, yes. And also, I mean, there are, and the other thing is, I mean, there are criminal elements that are also capturing. Uh, large parts of the coal value chain. So when we talk about the coal lobby, I mean, again, there are suspicions that there's outright, that there's corruption involved, that there's outright criminality. And it's almost like the, like I say, that the rest of the economy is going to be held hostage by elements of a mafia state. That's pretty strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, but, uh, I, I don't think it's, um, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to say, and and, and it's often done under the uh, it's often done under the veneer of um, you know to protect jobs and things like that. But you, you know, I mean, uh, typists don't exist anymore. You know, when I was fourteen, my first job was delivering newspapers by hand. Right? You know, no fourteen-year-olds doing that in Canada anymore. Um, you know, the the world moves on. Um, you know, we're not going to suddenly ditch online news to protect, you know, the jobs of uh, of adolescents in Nova Scotia. We're not going to suddenly, you know, uh, give up the Internet so that typists can have, uh, you know, can find work again. 
In that sense, I mean, it might sound like coal miners shouldn't be any different. But the other thing is, is that there are about, about 95,000 uh, coal miners in South Africa. But the potential for solar, uh, wind, all that kind of stuff is to create hundreds of thousands of jobs or millions of jobs while also protecting jobs in other sectors by keeping the economy competitive by decarbonizing. So again, again, you know, the, the coal, the, the coal, we really need to have a look at the, at, 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 um, our addiction to coal. Um, and we also see, so, I mean, right now, of course, last year, the coal price surged, uh, globally for a range of reasons, including, you know, Russia's invasion of, uh, Ukraine and things like that. And that kind of defied perhaps, you know, people have been writing obituaries about the coal sector. But if we, if we look here in South Africa, so Transnet's a shambles. And as a result, you know, the N2, uh, and I was up there in early December for a scuba diving and fishing trip to Sedwana, um, it's just full of these coal trucks now. And, uh, and that's damaging the roads, that it, it's making the roads very dangerous. And the, and, and, and the point is, is that it's only because of the price that that's economical. If the coal price was to suddenly collapse globally, uh, which it could, you know, who knows in the next couple of years, um, and Transnet remained a shambles, then those trucks would be off the road suddenly. But again, it wouldn't help our, um, it still wouldn't help with our, our, our with us. We, you know, we need to reduce the percentage of our power that comes from Coal, because the other thing is when you look at these at these coal interests, um, you know, mo- a growing number of banks will not fund new coal projects, be it mines, plants, whatever, terminals. So, wh- where is this money going to come from? Does South Africa seriously think it can build it? Does the South African government seriously think it can build another coal plant? I mean, another coal-fired plant. Look at um, Kasili. Look at Madupi. You know, they're in absolute shambles. Yeah, the cynic in me says I'd rather not look at either one of them. And like I say, who's going to fund it, yeah. right? I mean, that that raises concerns about where the financing will come from. I mean, now, Gary, no, no publicly listed bank is going to fund such projects. At least uh, in five years' time, you won't find uh, – uh, you'll, you'll find very few. So who's going to fund it? Russia? As a final topic, I know you're pressed for time. What is it? The, uh, uh, what do we call it? The JEFT, Joint, uh, Equitable, what, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the acronym's name now. The one that's supposed to fund equitable transitions, uh, in, uh, energy investments. Um, the, whatever the, uh, suddenly the, the, the actual name has flown out of my mind. But that arose out of the uh, COP meeting uh, recently, uh, in which a good chunk of the money that was being offered to South Africa came in the form of concessional loans, and a smaller chunk of it came in the form of out-and-out grants. Some of the arguments here seem to be that it's not fair, there should be more grant and less lending to make it more equitable as an equitable fund. Uh, what's your feeling about this? Well, I suppose, I mean, the other thing is I believe the concessional loans are being on. I mean, I, I, I think the interest rates would be very low. Yeah. Um, you know, they would certainly be lower than, you know, South Africa, a sub-investment 
great credit rating, as we know. So uh, I don't think South Africa should complain if somebody offers uh, them a loan at rates that you might typically offer to uh, a country with an investment grade credit rating, um, like Botswana. <laughs> for example, um, I mean, I mean, and I suppose in negotiations that that kind of stuff can get mixed around. I suppose some philanthropists might also come up with some grant money eventually who who are, you know, quite seized by this whole climate issue. But, um, you know, given South Africa's uh, credit rating um, and current uh, debt levels, um, you know, if you can get a concessional loan, at, I'm just going to talk off the top of my head here, at 4% or something like that, 2% or something like that, then, um, you know, uh, uh, why not take it? Um, and, and these things could probably be, you know, paid back over a, a very long period of time. But the thing is, if it makes the economy also more competitive and helps enhance economic growth, then it will be easier uh, in the long run to, to, to pay off those concessional loans. We have been talking with Ed Stoddard, who is an economic journalist, financial analyst, mining specialist, trout fisherman. regularly post pictures of these monstrous, gargantuan, jaws-sized trout that you have landed from a stream in, in Pumalanga somewhere. But he's helped us understand or uh, gain access to the slightly more arcane world of the Catastral Survey and the Mining Charter and uh, the, uh, the, the, the future of coal mining as it relates to economic growth in the country. It's been a lot to unpack in a, in a fairly tight time frame. But as I said right at the outset, although we don't most of us think about this that much because most of us don't do mining and most of us never re- really run into miners. Uh, it's a crucial part of the uh, foreign exchange earnings for South Africa. And it's still, despite its somewhat smaller size, is a major share of, of employment and healed if it is not made more accessible, more transparent more consistent with global emerging global norms, the country is going to find itself further and further behind on accessing that form of foreign direct investment or even domestic investment for that matter. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I've learned lots. Um, I always do when I read or listen to you. And I hope we can invite you back again at some point in the future to explain yet more issues relating to mining and economic growth. Okay, great. Thank you very much. You take care and have a good rest of your day and enjoy the fish.